Welcome to the Banegas West India podcast. Our focus is one health, one planet, one future. Our aim is health for all and leaving no one behind because Swast Bharat is Sampan Bharat. This year's theme for our campaign Banegas Swast India which is into its 8th year is one health, one planet, one future where we believe that we cannot ensure health for all unless there is inclusion and everyone is healthy especially those belonging to the marginalized communities who have traditionally been deprived be it tribals lgbtq community those living with disability but more importantly we cannot be healthy till we ensure a healthy planet even this year's theme for environment day is only one earth with the focus on living sustainably in harmony with nature that also is what acclaimed writer amitabh ghosh's latest book the living mountain is about Thank you so much Mr Ghosh for joining us today. Thank you Ambika it's a great pleasure to be with you thank you for having me. Coming as it does after your last year's book The Nutmeg's Curse that looked at the planet crisis from the lens of colonialism exploitation of natural resources and destruction of traditional wisdom and the balance it ensured between humans and nature how does the living mountain take that thought forward? Well, I think in many ways the Living Mountain really is a very short. Uh, I mean, it's just like four or five thousand words, forty forty uh, pages or something. It uh, really encapsulates, if you like, my last book, The Nutmeg's Curse, uh, because actually uh, what happened uh, to uh, uh, the people of the Banda Islands, you know, who grew the nutmeg tree, mm-hmm. uh, is what happens to the people in this valley, yes. and it's a kind of, if you like, a sort of parable for what's happening in the world. We are doing this interview when the country has been reeling under one of the worst heat waves and there are forest fires raging in different parts of the country and then there are also fires raging in the man-made mountains of garbage you know the landfills right here in Delhi right from the great derangement your non-fiction work on climate change in 2016 to most of your recent writings have the environment as the central theme and seem to be warning us of the mistakes made in the past and the lessons not learned Mr Ghosh tell us what has prompted you to pick up this topic again and again Um to be honest uh, it's uh, it's not that at all in fact as i've argued in my book the great derangement uh, mm-hmm. writing about climate change is extremely difficult and it's ex- especially difficult in relation to fiction you know it's very hard to make out, uh, to make stories out of this how do you make a story out of a heat wave mm-hmm. you know uh you can perhaps make a story about a storm or you know a yeah. tornado or something but to write a story about a heat heat wave is so very difficult and you're right you know i was in india just uh, a very short while ago and the heat wave is uh, astonishing i mean it's uh, it's just sort of so unprecedented mm. but you know what also struck me as truly astonishing is that everything seemed so weirdly normal yeah. everyone was just carrying on as though you know nothing had happened and uh, in a way that was what was the most uh, most unsettling thing it's like we we we've already learned to take this in our stride and yet uh, you know it's perfectly clear now that really large parts of india are just heading towards disaster i mean even more than climate change i would say delhi's real problem uh, in the long run uh, is going to be water you know we see that this is a Delhi's always been on the edge of a desert it's a water stressed area and uh, uh, we've become completely dependent on uh, you know fossil water from the upper ganga aquifer that aquifer is now almost exhausted once it runs out uh, you know really what are we going to do 
Mr. Kosh, the living mountain now and the nutmeg's curse, you know, they both come against the backdrop of the pandemic, which many scientists do believe is zoonotic in nature caused by increasing overlap in the worlds of animals and humans and diseases jumping between the species. Both the books, in fact, highlight the overexploitation unleashed by commercial interest. In fact, greed is a theme that one sees in Jungle Nama too, you know, where Dhona's greed takes him into the forest to tap into the riches. There is no end, you know, when we're talking about greed. You refer to it, uh, you know, in Living Mountain as a drug our bodies have grown used to. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, uh, uh, we've grown used uh, to this entire cycle of consumption, 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 you know, consumption, production. And actually, these are what are the drivers of the planetary crisis. You know, as you just said, uh, the COVID pandemic plus climate change plus uh, if you like, the migration crisis that we see all around us, uh, the wars that we are now seeing, all of these are actually symptoms. They're symptoms of this incredible acceleration uh, in production and consumption that's really overtaken the world. And that is really pointing us towards a global catastrophe. Another running theme in your books has been the destruction of the balance between nature and the way humans interact with it. So in The Living Mountain, we see the traditional wisdom of the people who consider the mountain to be revered as a living being where one should not set foot on, let alone exploit its resources being bulldozed by the anthropoi who have their own sets of ideas which they consider superior and more progressive about, you know, how to tap the mountain. In The Hungry Tide as well as The Jungle Nama, you talk of this balance through the legend of born, uh, you know, Bibi who establishes a similar balance in Sundarbans by confining the demon Dokhin Rai in one part of the forest to protect human population. You know, like the forest reserves were actually meant to be. But the balance is what is actually being destroyed and we don't seem to know how to pursue economic growth as well as protect the environment at the same time. How do we really redefine development? Uh, well, uh, you know, actually that battle has been fought and is being fought as we speak in India today. You know, in Niamgiri, uh, in Odisha, uh, the Adivasis resisted uh, a, a mining company uh, on the grounds that, uh, you know, they were going to dis uh, destroy their sacred mountain. And actually, the Supreme Court then did recognize that uh, they had a case. But now, as we see across India, again, in Hasdeo Arand, as we speak, uh, yeah. the, one of the last uh, tracts of uh, primary forest is being opened up to mining interests. So, you know, and always we are told this is all about development. It's all about progress. But how do you tell, uh, you know, 100,000 people losing their land, their livelihood, their environment, that this is for yeah. their progress? Because where... where uh, uh, where they will be uh, be put, they won't be able to make a livelihood. And if there is any progress or development that comes out of this, it's for a tiny group of uh, yeah. of industrialists uh, and of mining interests and of corporates. For everyone else, this is uh, losing your land like that. Just imagine losing your house and being told that this is for progress. You know, you have time and again, Sundarbans has been an integral part of the plot for many of your books. What is it about Sundarbans that draws you to keep revisiting it in your work? Well, uh, since you've been there, you know, it's a very powerful landscape. You know, it's something Absolutely. that really haunts one. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like any other forest. It's not like, say, the forests of uh, Uttarakhand or anything. It's completely different. Uh, so, 
You know, the Sundarbans actually was uh, was what uh, they opened my eyes to the uh, to the climate crisis, honestly, because way back in 2000, when I was there researching my novel, The Hungry Tide, mm. you could already then see the effects uh, on the Sundarban of climate change. And all the things yeah. that you mentioned right now, islands disappearing, um, uh, saltwater intrusion, yeah. temperature, but mangroves. also the uns- yeah. uh, mangroves, yes. But also many things that you probably will not have noticed, which is the uh, many species of uh, animals, etc., are fading away. You know, the most important uh, uh, creature in the Sundarbans is actually the crab. The crab is what keeps, it's the keystone species in a sense. It keeps the whole mangrove forest breathing. And there's been a huge diminution in the number of crabs. You know, way back, uh, uh, I can remember from years and years ago, you would see, uh, you know, crabs, <laughs> whole sandbanks, would, uh, mud banks would turn red with crabs. You don't see that anymore. Also, Even I guess because life. so many people are fishing more, uh, Mr. Bush. So they go into the waters again, livelihoods, the pandemic. We saw that, like, because last week when I went, actually, uh, you, you're absolutely right. You don't see so many birds, I mean, species, like what you just rightly said. Yeah, I mean, actually, the bird life has become so diminished in the Sundarban. It's really shocking. But apart from that, also, if you talk to the fishermen there, they'll tell you that it's becoming harder and harder to uh, to find fish. Yeah. You know, so this is a huge problem. And let's not forget the Sundarban lets out onto the Bay of Bengal. The Bay of Bengal is now covered with all these dead zones, you know, where nothing mm. can actually live. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, the Bay of Bengal supports tens of millions of people. Mm. And it's turning into a dead zone is going to be a catastrophe on a scale that we can't even uh, speak of. And it's happening because of agricultural fertilizers. Mr. Ghosh, in your book, uh, you know, in 2019, Gun Island, you have one of your characters saying, I would like to quote here, that Sundarbans are the frontier where commerce and wilderness look each other directly in the eyes. That's exactly where the war between profit and nature is fought. So, unquote. Today, Sundarbans is already in the front lines of the climate crisis where lives and livelihoods are being lost. In fact, like I just mentioned, you know, during our visit there, we saw efforts being made to reforest the area, regrow mangroves to ward off the risk posed by the increased frequency of cyclones. But, you know, the question here, what I would like to ask you, Mr. Ghosh, is it a little too late? And how do we reverse the sustained damage done over the decades? Um, Is it too late? Of course, it's never too late. I mean... Uh, in mm. some sense, you can always ameliorate, you can mitigate. Okay. And actually, mm-hmm. our neighbor, Bangladesh, is, uh, has been uh, far ahead of us in doing that. You know, They've come up with all kinds of solutions for uh, you know, the mangroves over there, like even including oyster beds, planting oyster beds around particular islands and so on. Uh, they've really been pioneers in, uh, in all of this, and we need to learn from them, I would say. But uh, in a sense, you know, the real problem uh, is that it's not just, uh, uh, you know, anthropogenic sea level rise. Uh, The other problem is that deltas around the world are sinking at four times the rate of sea level rise. You know, so uh, the Chao Phraya Delta in Thailand is already, I mean, you know, you can see roads disappearing into the bay. Uh, So... And that, again, has happened because of anthropogenic impacts, you know, pumping up groundwater, pump, uh, pumping up oil, etc. Yeah. So, you know, 
uh, what the long-term future holds for this area is very grim. It's very hard to see uh, what happens. I'm glad you saw uh, people planting mangroves and so on, but you know what has happened over the last uh, two decades, I would say, especially starting with uh, with Cyclone Aila in 2009, mm. uh, is that people have had to leave the Sundarban uh, in droves, yes. absolutely in droves, and they've just joined, as it were, the urban dispossessed proletariat. One of the challenges about climate reporting, you know, that journalists grapple with it is how do they make it relevant and relatable for the readers so that they understand the urgency and act and at the ultimate, you know, they hope that they can raise their voice in whatever capacity to push for change at policy level. As a writer for you, Mr. Ghosh, how big is that challenge, you know, to tell the story you want to about climate crisis so that it finds wider audience and acceptance? Um, look, at this point, uh, I think everybody knows uh, that the climate is changing. You know, it would be impossible not to. It would be impossible for someone living in Delhi not to recognize that something really disastrous uh, is happening, you know. Uh, so it's not any longer a question of communicating the crisis. I think everybody really knows, you know. Uh, the problem is rather, how do you make, how do you make uh, good literature out of it? And there, the problem is no different from writing any other kind of novel or short story or whatever. Uh, you have to have uh, strong characters. You have to have a good story to tell. Uh, you have to have a powerful plot. And I'm glad to say that actually, I see more and more of that uh, uh, every day, really. I mean, so many interesting books coming out now about these issues. Yeah. You know, another thing which I think our viewers would want to know is how do you decide the form? How much of it is driven by the audience or, you know, or do you hope to reach or is it purely based on the content? Um, I, it's certainly not a question of audience, you know. Okay. I don't think it really works like that. I mean, no writer sits there thinking, oh my God, you know, that's the it's audience not... I'll target. Mm. It just doesn't work like that. You okay. know, the story has to work for you in the first place, and then you um, and and then you decide to write it. With Jungle Nama, actually, uh, you know, I've been working, I've been writing about the Bon Bibi legend for a very long time, going back yeah. to the Hungry Tide and so on. And I think it's a story that that ha that needs to be told. It's a story that really has a particular urgency right now because it's a story really about. Uh, exactly this, you know, on the one hand, you have a sort of greedy merchant who's going into the forest. And on the other hand, you have the forest, uh, you know, striking back at the greedy merchant. Uh, so in a way, you know, what is really remarkable in all of these uh, stories and legends, uh, you know, told by our ancestors, Mm -hmm. uh, is that they conceptualized uh, the problem very clearly. The problem was, uh, you know, human profit on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, the needs of non-humans, uh, you know, how do you balance this? And they understood that this is a very, this is a very delicate balance, uh, which are, because on both sides, they're constantly tending to spill over, you know, into each other. So, uh, you know, these stories, I do think, have a very great urgency today. Obviously, while content is important, you know, story is equally important, you know, how you reach out to your viewers. Your writings also indicate the interdependence that is integral part of nature. For instance, uh, in The Hungry Tide, you describe crabs as the sanitation department and the janitorial team rolled into one that keep the mangroves alive by removing their leaves and litter. I mean, without them, the trees would choke on their own debris. 
So in our climate change reporting, or even in the global climate negotiations, the big headlines seem to be about air pollution, controlling the emissions to curtail global temperature rise to 1.5 degree or 2 degrees. Are we all really missing the nuances of nature in all the noise? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, I don't really like uh, this term nature and I uh, try to avoid it as far as possible, you know, because uh, nature so somehow is a, implies that this is something outside uh, the human, you know. So uh, historically within uh, Western culture, they've always opposed uh, nature to culture as it were. So, I, you know, that's not really something that, that comes from an Indian tradition or any sort of um, indigenous tradition anywhere. And I think it's a very artificial distinction. So, uh, you know, what we are really rather talking about is the interdependence of uh, in incredible numbers of species, you know, uh, including, if you like, the species that are within us, you know, more than 50% of our body weight comes from other species, bacteria, uh, you know. Uh, so even within the biome, uh, even each of us is, in fact, a sort of living forest, you know. And I think we have to look at it in terms of um, uh, in terms of the interdependence of species, because as you just as you just said, I mean, the crabs, uh, you know, are so fundamental to the Sundarban. And it's the last thing that we think of when we think of the Sundarban, you know, we think of uh, tigers or king cobras or whatever, but never the crab. But it's the humble crab that keeps us alive, that keeps the forest alive. Mr. Ghosh, as COVID-19 proved the hardest hit, and obviously those are the vulnerable and the marginalized, climate crisis is no different from farmers to fishermen. The poor are most affected. And even within that, the women and children are the worst off. The widening inequity, the migration due to frequent disasters, the resulting social unrest and conflicts, and I mean, they're too real and already happening. In fact, in The Living Mountain, you allude to the climate negotiation and the blame shifting between the developed and the developing countries as a long palaver was held, but nothing came of it. Where do we go from here? And do we see any glimpses of a new world order emerging out of this chaos? Clearly, there is a new world order emerging. But I think the first thing that we, that we need uh, to acknowledge uh, in relation to climate change is that this is not all about uh, technology it's not about uh, it's not about science it's fundamentally a human conflict uh, you know it's war by another name that is what climate change ultimately is and that's why it is uh, so difficult to find any way of addressing it particularly because we don't acknowledge it as conflict you know which is actually what it is uh, so we pretend that it's something else now you know today uh, such a large part of the world is under sanctions, you know, imposed by the United States and the West. If you put sanctions on so many countries, uh, how, how do you expect them to cooperate on climate change? And in fact, they had, they stopped cooperating. If, if you look at COP26, in, many, in so many ways, it was a complete failure. It shows us that all global institutions have broken down. You know, the so-called global order has now completely vanished, as we see most clearly with this uh, uh, war in uh, in Ukraine. So, uh, you know, I think we can no longer even pretend that there is any attempt globally to, uh, to address these problems. Anyone who is saying that is just uh, deceiving themselves. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Mr. Ghosh, for this World Environment Day special. It's a pleasure to have you with us. That's it on the Banika Swast India podcast this week. If you have comments, queries or suggestions 
on the topic we discussed today or issues you would like us to cover in future, write to us on BSI Podcast at the rate ndtv.com. Remember, BSI stands for Banega Swast India. You can also connect with us on the Banega Swast India handles on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and continue with the conversations through the week. Till next week, this is Ambika Singh Kama signing off. Stay healthy and stay safe.